Understand this, in biblical terms, to be hard-hearted is primarily a description of the will. It's not something that just happens to you. It's something you're culpable for. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What factors have led to the demand for society, including many believers, to reject biblical morality concerning gender and sexuality? And how should followers of Jesus Christ respond? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. And today, Tom has part eight of his current series, Trending Versus Truth, exploring the biblical response to various moral issues that are trending, including gender, sexuality, morality, and social justice issues. For the believer, nothing is more crucial than learning that your true identity is found in Jesus Christ. As Savior, He has authority over all aspects of life, including how you view gender identity and sexuality. The question is, have you surrendered all of your life, as well as taken every thought captive to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, or might you be living contrary to the concrete truths of the gospel? Let's join Tom right now for more here on The Word Unleashed. Today, it is LGBTQIA+. So what does all that stand for? Well, I don't want to spend a lot of time here for obvious reasons, but but let me just give you definitions. L stands for lesbian, G for gay, so the feminine and, and masculine per, involvees in, in homosexual behavior. B is bisexual, sexually responsive to both sexes. T is transgender or transsexual. It can mean anyone dissatisfied with their biological sex in sort of a, an umbrella sense, but it's normally used, transgender is, of those who desire to assume or who do assume the physical characteristics and gender role of the opposite biological sex. Q stands for queer, or some would say for questioning. This is a person who's either uncertain of their gender identity or those who refuse to be classified, claiming that binary categories of male and female is discriminatory. I is for intersex, those, those folks who are born with some physical sexual ambiguity. A is for asexual, that is, those attracted to neither male nor female. And the plus, of course, says there are a whole lot more categories that could or may be added. But here's the main point I don't want you to miss when it comes to what is gender theory. In gender theory, biology doesn't matter at all. It's all about what you feel. And any disagreement with gender theory is considered intolerant, hateful, or they love this word, transphobia, meaning a fear of those who fall in these categories. There's an assumption, an implication, that if you disagree, there's only one reason you would disagree, and that is that you are hateful and bigoted. Well, the truth is, we as Christians should never be either hateful or bigoted. We should be gracious, compassionate, and caring, but we also can and must disagree. So that's the background in terms of a functional definition. That brings us, secondly, to its philosophical formation. 
How did it develop? Where did this come from? Well, as we have learned, ultimately the gender confusion of our day stems from our culture's abandonment of God, its silencing of the Scripture, and its reimagining of all morality. Specifically, however, we can trace the progress of gender theory through three important movements of the past couple of centuries. Let me lay those out for you. Three movements in the historical development of this idea. The first movement is Darwinian evolutionary theory. This is really the foundation. With Origin of Species in 1859, Darwin removed humanity from its biblical position. And as you know, the biblical position is man is made in the image of God, male and female. That's what the Scriptures teach, and we're going to look at that in detail in the next couple of weeks. But Darwin abandoned that and said instead, human beings are just another species of surviving animals. Now, shortly after Darwin's book was published, many academics began to argue on the basis of that theory that there's no absolute morality and anything that animals do sexually is perfectly acceptable for humans. That is how evolutionary theory gave birth to the second movement that you need to know about, and that is the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution. Evolutionary theory laid the groundwork for the destructive philosophy of a man whom you've heard of back in the 1800s. He died in 1900. His name is Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche took the next step from Darwin, and he argued that God is dead. That means, he said, there is no objective truth, and, and this was really important to him, there are therefore no moral absolutes. Nietzsche demanded that Christianity, which he considered to be repressive, be replaced, and here it begins, be replaced with total sexual freedom. Now, out of Darwin and, and Nietzsche, who really gave full moral expression to Darwin's views, came the sexual revolution. Sharon Jones, in her book that I mentioned, lists a series of influential thinkers who followed Nietzsche and who championed this idea that the repressive morality of, of Christianity needed to be replaced with complete and total sexual freedom. Let me just mention several of these influential people so you're aware of them. First of all, Carl Ulrich. He was a German doctor who argued for and defended homosexuality. He was the first to argue that a female soul could be trapped in a man's body. Sigmund Freud is the next, and he believed that the concept of God was a fairy tale. It was based on a child's need for a father figure. Instead, he said, there is no God. We are simply highly developed animals. And because of that, Freud said, all sexual desire and all sexual acts are normal and acceptable. Magnus Hirschfeld is the next name you need to know. He was a German homosexual doctor who built on Freud's idea, and he really became the architect of the sexual revolution. It was Hirschfeld who supervised the first sex reassignment surgery. 
overlapping and in the same basic time period came an American whose work really gave birth to the sexual revolution in our own country, Alfred Kinsey. Alfred Kinsey referred to himself as a sexual researcher, but in reality he was personally addicted to sexual perversion. He was educated at Harvard and he founded the Sex Institute in Indiana. His experiments included abusing children and infants. He advocated legalizing all sexual behavior, including pornography, bestiality, and pedophilia. One of his associates was a man by the name of Harry Benjamin. Harry Benjamin wrote the first textbook on transgenderism in 1966. He was the first to really champion the idea that if a person was convinced that they were living in the wrong body, their body should be fixed to fit their feelings. And the last name I want to mention to you is Robert Stoller. Robert Stoller wrote Sex and Gender in 1968, an amazingly influential book in academic circles in which he argued that sex is biological but gender is social. So this was the sexual revolution, and you can see how it, it grew from the foundation of Darwinian evolution. Man is just an animal, there is no God, there is no morality, Nietzsche said, and out of that came everything is acceptable. Now there was one additional catalyst behind the development of gender theory, and it was the cultural revolution, also called cultural Marxism. At the same time that the sexual revolution was unfolding through those men and others that I mentioned, an academic theory was coming out of Frankfurt, Germany called the critical theory or cultural Marxism, and this theory added more fuel to the fire. Now, the critical theory is the basis of the critical race theory, and, and today I just want to explain it briefly. This is not my full explanation, but it'll give you enough to know how it factors in. The critical theory, or cultural Marxism, grows, as you can guess, out of Marxism. And it argues this, essentially, that in every society there are oppressors and there are the oppressed. That society is all about power and only power. And there are those who hold the power, they're the oppressors, and there are those who feel the force of the power, they're the oppressed. The oppressors, the ruling class, keep in power by enforcing their values and their norms. Now you can see that when this theory was combined with the sexual revolution, the standard that was being used to control people, to keep power, they argued, was traditional Christian morality. One philosopher and sociologist associated with the Frankfurt School, out of which this critical theory came, Herbert Marcuse, who, who lived in the 20th century, died in 1979, he taught, this is very important, very important for you to understand, he taught that the mere tolerance of different lifestyles in a free society is really pseudo-tolerance, that it still continues to allow this repressive superstructure to exist. So Marcuse argued for there to be real freedom, all traditional views of morality and all of those who hold them have to go. 
Because as long as there's mere tolerance, then that's just a facade. The norms are still in place to control and manipulate people. In the critical theory, at the top are the privileged oppressors, and at the bottom are the oppressed victims. This is what is called identity politics. And when the sexual revolution joined forces with cultural Marxism, they decided that those who hold traditional morality and gender distinctions are the oppressors. In fact, queer theory, as they call it, says that if you believe that heterosexuality is normal, did you hear that? If you believe that heterosexuality is normal, then you are bigoted and hateful. If you believe that heterosexual marriage is crucial to society's stability, you are oppressive. You are in that oppressor category. Now, do you see how this works? That means that those in the oppressed categories of LGBTQ, etc., are the oppressed, and they are to be admired and celebrated for courageously living out their real identity, even in the face of the oppression of traditional Christian morality. They argue that a binary understanding of sex and gender, that in other words, the idea that there are only male and female, was created. That idea was created, they say, by the oppressive class of heterosexual Christian males to maintain control. Now, folks, that's where we are today. And that, I hope, will let you understand why you see what you see on the news and on news websites. That's where it's coming from. That's the foundation of it. The combination of evolutionary theory the sexual revolution and cultural Marxism have led to the demand to reject biblical morality and to marginalize, and now there is a growing cry even to criminalize all who hold it. So this is where we are. The question is, how should we respond? I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I've touched on this passage intentionally a couple of times already in this series, but I haven't walked through it entirely because I wanted to save it for this moment. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. You remember that Paul begins the second half of Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 1, by saying, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He says, the first three chapters, I've told you about your calling what you enjoy because of Christ. Now I'm going to tell you, I want you to walk worthy of that calling. The first way we walk worthy is by walking in unity. That begins in verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, goes all the way down through verse 16. Walk in unity in the church. Now verse 17 begins a new section where he basically says, if you're going to walk worthy of your calling, you need to walk in holiness. He begins by saying, you just can't keep living like the pagans around you. Let's read it together. Verse 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity 
with greediness. This passage says, stop living like the pagans we used to be. And as he does so, he, he outlines several defining characteristics of how pagans live. This is essential for us to understand, to understand our culture. It's how we used to live. It's how all pagans live. It begins with worthless worldviews. I've already touched on this, so I won't spend much time here. Verse 17, they walk in the futility of their mind. Their worldviews, their mindsets, their ways of thinking, the grids through which unbelievers see the world are all futile. They lack meaning and purpose. Why do they hold such worthless worldviews like gender theory? The second defining characteristic is a darkened mind. We also have looked at this already. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding. Their minds, their thinking process, and the thoughts that result are all pitch black. They lack light entirely. There is a constant inability to think and to reason rationally. They have lost all touch with spiritual reality. And that's because, thirdly, they have a lifeless soul. Verse 18 goes on to say, they are excluded from the life of God. Excluded comes from a Greek word that means belonging to another, alien to, or even hostile to. Literally, the Greek text says, having been excluded or alienated. That speaks of a past event with continuing results, likely referring to the fall. All unbelievers, as a result of the fall, have been excluded from the life of God. They have a soul in which there is no spiritual life. They are physically alive, their hearts beat, their brains function, they have families, they have jobs, they have careers, they even have religions. They sleep, they eat, they play, but without Christ, they're the walking dead. This is why the gospel offers eternal life. It offers life to those who are dead, who are excluded from the life of God. Unbelievers are strangers to the life that comes from God because of, number four, a willful ignorance. Notice verse 18 goes on to say, because of the ignorance that is in them. And there are different kinds of ignorance, right? There's ignorance because you, you've never heard something, you've never learned it, etc. This kind of ignorance here describes something you have known and understood but pushed out of your mind. Tragically, unregenerate people are ignorant of God and of His ways, but it's not accidental. It's willful. Having willfully chosen to shut out of their minds God and what He's revealed about Himself in creation and in His Word, listen to this, they live in a self-imposed state of ignorance about God and His will. Now, where does this self-imposed ignorance come from? Fifthly, a hard heart. Notice verse 18 continues, because this willful ignorance in them is because of the hardness of their hearts. Folks, here we get to the core problem. It's not a lack of information. Unbelievers are willfully ignorant of God. They suppress the truth because they have hard hearts. The Greek word translated hardness is poros. It's used to describe the consistency of stone like marble. In other words, they have a, a heart of stone. 
Understand this, in biblical terms, to be hard-hearted is primarily a description of the will. It's not something that just happens to you. It's something you're culpable for. So on the one end, a hard heart, read the things that come before it, the hard heart produces all those things, but it produces something else, and this gets to our point. A final defining characteristic of how pagans walk is a sinful lifestyle. Look at verse 19. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Verse 19 explains that eventually a hard heart becomes a calloused heart. The word calloused means to cease to feel pain. Here it means to lose all moral sensitivity, to become insensitive to the truth, for there to be no moral guilt, no sense of shame. When the heart becomes callous, something terrible happens. Verse 19 says, they have given themselves over. They stop even trying to resist. They stop trying to fight their corruption in any way. Literally, the text says they have abandoned themselves. And what do they abandon themselves to pursue without restraint? Verse 19 says, sensuality, unrestrained, outrageous conduct, a lifestyle unrestrained by law or general morality. It means to go beyond the proper bounds or limits. Harold Honer describes it as the practice of sin without concern as to what God or people think. Sensuality then is unrestrained indulgence in sensual pleasure, the pleasure that comes from satisfying the senses or the body's appetites. Verse 19 says, for the practice of every kind of impurity. The word impurity is literally refuse. It describes what's dirty. Every kind of moral act that renders the soul dirty before God. And notice how they pursue this sensual lifestyle, verse 19 says, with greediness. This describes the intensity with which pagans pursue every kind of behavior that makes them dirty before God. They do it with greediness, an insatiable craving for more. William Barclay describes this as being so much at the mercy of your own desires that you don't care whose life is injured or whose innocence is destroyed as long as your own desires are satisfied. Folks, do you see how these verses, and particularly verse 19, describes what's going on in our culture? But what about us? Look at verse 20. But you, but you did not learn Christ in this way. You didn't, you didn't learn in the school of Christ anything like this. That's a general statement. And then in verse 21, he makes it more specific. If indeed you have heard him, that's probably a reference to when you heard Christ in the gospel. If you, that time when you really heard the gospel and you responded, you realize Christ himself was in that gospel message. You heard him, not just about him. So that has to do with your salvation. And you have been taught in him. That has to do with our ongoing instruction about Christ and from Christ in his word. So Paul says, listen, believer, this isn't you. Don't buy into their thinking, and for goodness sake, don't follow their lifestyle. Don't imitate what they do. And he goes on to explain how. Put off those things that are part of who you used to be. Be renewed in your mind through the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and put on those things that 
are like God, those things, behaviors and thinking patterns that resemble who He is. This is the call for us in a world that's completely pagan and that is callous, insensitive to morality, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part eight of Trending Versus Truth. Join us next time for part nine. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Plan to join Tom Pennington this summer, June 24th and 25th at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas, as he introduces The Word Unleashed's first annual Faithful Stewards Conference Series. Faithful Stewards is designed for pastors, elders, teachers, and church leaders. But even if you aren't in one of those categories, you're welcome to attend. This year's theme is Loving Christ by Feeding His Sheep, a reflection on our Lord's challenge to the Apostle Peter, as found in John chapter 21. There's no cost to attend, but registration is required. June 24th and 25th. Go to thewordunleashed.org to register. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.